very good morning to all of you. A haunting and chilling morning, as you can already tell from that monologue, we are going to dip into some tricky territory today. Before we get started, I want to welcome you all. My name is Tracy Bianchi, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. And I know we have our community in Downers Grove joining us this morning, so a special welcome to them. And a special welcome to everybody who probably flipped open their laptop to go to Pajama Church today because it is snowing probably four inches, they say, in April. So welcome to all of you. It is the beginning of Holy Week, and this is a dark week. The week ends, as we know, with the great triumphant joy of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have a long way to go to get there. And so listen now as I read to us the Word of God as it comes from Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? And Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge. He doesn't defend himself at all against their false accusations. And this, we're told, is to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus being a very common name, Joshua at the time. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which Jesus do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have any of you ever stayed up all night 
pulled an all-nighter, as some might say. Perhaps you were awake with great worry or concern, unable to sleep, counting the minutes before dawn, counting those moments until the gears of the world started churning again. Maybe you were finishing a pressing work project or studying for a final exam. Maybe you were waiting for the doctor's rounds to start again or the pediatrician's office to open or the judge to come back and take the bench, waiting for the sky to turn from black into gray and finally to the blue that would indicate to you things would begin moving again. Were you pacing, wondering, wringing your hands and waiting? Were people waiting with you? In this crucifixion narrative, we've entered that moment, that moment before dawn when everyone is waiting. Thursday is beginning to tip into Friday. It's still early, maybe it's 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, maybe there's a tiny sliver of light on the horizon. There are still a few hours to go. An evening, as we know, that began just a few hours earlier as fidelity and friendship were on display, camaraderie around the shared last meal with Jesus, ends in betrayal and the arrest of Jesus and the chickening out of Peter and the scattered fear of the followers and the religious leaders who have been set apart throughout history to identify, honor, and usher in the Messiah have instead located him, dragged him through the streets, blindfolded him, and beat him. Judas is somewhere by now wondering, maybe pulling on his face, what have I done? And there's the pause before dawn. And this dawn, as we know, will signal violence and anger, bloodshed, terror, and the attempted murder of God. Whichever end of the equation you might find yourself on, it's been an exhausting night. The Jewish leaders have been up all night beating a man half to death. And I wonder if their hands were swollen from all of the punches. I've seen people put a bag of ice on their fists before. Were they swollen and bloody and bruised? How tired were they from meeting out this punishment? Fist fight in the movies always looks really exhausting. Was anybody napping in the corner waiting for things to start again? The religious leaders, as we know, they wanted Jesus executed, but they had no authority to do this on their own, which is why everybody is waiting. Like a small-town mayor trying to give the death penalty, this wasn't within their jurisdiction, and they had to wait for Pilate to wake up before they could do what they wanted to do to their Messiah. And given who Pilate was, the governor of Judea, a man who rose above the tatter of these sorts of things, you didn't just go knocking at his door in the middle of the night, or you yourself would be dragged through the streets and possibly executed just for disturbing him. 
He had the finest food and the finest accoutrements and assistants and servants, and you didn't wake him up before dawn. So the gospel writer Mark tells us very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish leadership at this time, they made their plans very early in the morning. And finally, morning comes, and the sun is up. And first, in Matthew's account, we see Judas again. We talked about Judas last week where he sold Jesus out for 30 shekels of silver. And we find him on that morning realizing the full weight of his betrayal. And scripture says he ran back into the temple. And were the priests there sweeping the floors or lighting the incense or getting ready for the day? And and Judas walks in and he says, I've done the wrong thing. He says, help me undo this, basically. And they look at him and scripture says, they say, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas takes the 30 shekels of silver and scriptures say he throws them in the temple and he runs off. And he spends the rest of his morning finding a rope and trying to locate a branch that can hold the weight of an adult male's body, his own. Meanwhile, Jesus is finally dragged before Pilate. And what did Pilate have his, on his agenda for the day when he flipped open his outlook or trolled through his calendar? Did he expect an easy morning? He certainly didn't expect the Son of God to be dragged to his doorstep. And when he heard the banging on the door, was he still finishing up his coffee or trying to figure out what exactly he would do with his morning? And he's confronted with this rabble, this confusing trial that he's being asked to officiate, to preside over. And Pilate is a Roman governor. He is not familiar with Jewish customs and Jewish law. He's certainly heard of Jesus. He's aware that it is their Passover festival. One of the responsibilities that he holds is to keep order and to keep everyone together and make Rome look good during this Passover festival. And this religious sect was prone to outbursts and to riots and to basically making a mess of things on many occasions. And so Pilate wants to keep things under control, but for the most part, he flies above all this. And he doesn't really get much involved. And now he's face to face with Jesus. And scripture tells us, shows us in the line of questioning that Pilate's intrigued by Jesus. Now, if you look at Pilate historically, he's not a man who was exactly lenient on folks. And he often sent people to their crucifixion without ever giving them a trial. He had no problem sending people to to their death. He couldn't be bothered with it on most occasions. But Jesus, he decides to engage in dialogue and in conversation. And in this uh, narrative that we read today, you'll notice, if you go back and reread it, Pilate mostly just asks questions, seven of them to be exact. And he makes just two statements, the ones that condemn him at the end. And if you go and read John's narrative in chapters 18 and 19, you'll see a similar banter and a similar dialogue. You'll find that Pilate is confounded by Jesus. And he senses there's a tremendous ethos about him. 
And there's a way in which he carries himself. There's a power he has that Pilate is trying to figure out. And in John's narrative, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And you can almost see Jesus playing with him. Is that your idea, Jesus asks, or did others talk to you about me? And Pilate spits back, am I a Jew? Your own people, Pilate says, have handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And they go back and forth, and Jesus eventually says, my kingdom is not of this world, and if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And Pilate finally has a moment that maybe provides clarity, and he goes, you are a king then. And Jesus answers, well, you say that I'm a king. And in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate spits back that famous phrase, what is truth? Back and forth they go. And during this interrogation of Jesus, we're told that Pilate's wife, a woman historically known as Claudia, sends word. Now remember, it's early morning, so maybe Claudia wasn't up yet when Pilate got up to handle the affairs of the day. And so she wakes up, and all of a sudden, the dreams that she has overnight fall into place and become tremendously vivid for her. And she sends word, do not harm that man. She says, I've suffered a great deal considering this man. Do not harm him. Charlotte Bronte once wrote about Pilate's wife this vignette. Dreams then are true, for thus my vision ran. Surely some oracle has been with me. The gods have chosen me to reveal their plan, to warn an unjudge, unjust judge of destiny. I, slumbering, heard and saw, awake, now I know, Christ's coming death and Pilate's life of woe. She's warning him. This will change everything. And her dream, of course, does not deter his course of action. And this life of woe line is interesting because Pilate does go down in history as the one who executed Jesus. And if you've been with us at all during Lent or have ever read the narrative, he's not the worst person in the story at first glance, is he? We think about Caiaphas, who we walked through that first week, the high priest who knew darn well what the Messiah was going to look like and didn't want to give up his own power. And Judas and all the other disciples who scatter. And there's Herod. And we haven't even discussed the soldiers who gamble for his garments. And what about the soldier who actually straps the body of Jesus to a cross and drills nails into his living palms? Those are some pretty horrible people. But Pilate is the one whose name goes down in history as the executioner of Jesus. As we know, it's recorded in the Passover custom in this narrative that Pilate could have and tried to change the course of this event by releasing a prisoner to them. And so he says to the crowd, who do you want? 
Now, Barabbas is historically, he was a known terrorist, an insurrectionist who had been convicted of murderer, a murder. There was no question about Barabbas's guilt. And Pilate thinks, I'm going to get out of this conundrum. This man, Jesus, is innocent. Pilate believes him to be so, but he needs a way out of this that's going to make him look good. And so he says, clearly, these people will make a wise decision, and they will choose the convicted murderer to be executed, and they will let this innocent man go. And so as we know, he presents this option to the crowd, and the crowd wants nothing to do with Barabbas. And instead, they want the blood of Jesus. And so Pilate, in that moment, chooses to shirk his responsibility. And the crowd's growing louder and the pressure of how to make this all look good. Or honestly, maybe it was boredom or a desire to just move on to other things because Pilate had the power to do that. And he just moves on with his day. And he washes his hands of this. And he says, fine, you guys, have it your way. Pilate is the one, because of this, who we know as the murderer of Jesus. It's why in our Apostles' Creed, if any of you know this, we say he suffered under whom? Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and buried. It's why biblical authors who write letters later in Scripture, like Paul, have these moments to twist the knife and invoke the evil name of Pilate. There's a passage in 1 Timothy where Paul is talking to Timothy, trying to encourage him. It, it, the passage has nothing to do about Pontius Pilate, but instead of just saying Jesus who was, who was, who was crucified, he throws Pilate's name in there. Jesus who testified before Pontius Pilate and, Pilate and made a good confession. And Paul goes on to throw Pilate under the bus. Why then is Pilate the one who is left holding the bag in many ways. And I wonder about this for us today and how this applies to our own lives. This Roman governor who has all the power and stature he needs to do the right thing and he chooses not to. It's been said uh, that knowledge is power. And there is truth in that. There's truth in that saying, knowledge is power. But the two are not quite exactly the same. Knowledge and power are not mutually exclusive. And throughout history, there have been billions of people who've had great knowledge to act on what they know to be true about God and to act on the justice or mercy that they know is necessary. They've had that knowledge, but no power to act. Billions of people because of the place they found themselves in history or because of oppression or because of their age or their gender or their race or where they are in the geopolitical scheme of things, there are billions of people who have lots of knowledge and no power. And there have been billions of people throughout history with knowledge and power. Pilate is one of them. What do you do when you know the truth about Jesus and refuse to pair that knowledge with the power that you have to act? 
Ed Barreto, a New Testament professor at Princeton, says this. He said, Jesus' execution is a conspiracy of empowered cowardice and derelict duty. When Pilate washes his hands, he does nothing to minimize his complicity. He refuses to act. I'm reminded of the title of a a book, an old book now by the late Chuck Colson, a simple title, How Now Shall We Live? He wrote a book titled, How Now Shall We Live? Given what we know to be true, how should we live? What should we do with the resources, the power, the knowledge that we have? All of us have some level of knowledge or find some level of knowledge of God in our lives. And maybe uh, Pilate is your situation and Jesus is literally dumped on your doorstep. But for most of us, that's not actually what happens. But we come to an awareness, a knowledge of the God of the universe. We become aware that we are created and there is a creator and the truth of God moves into our hearts and lives. And those of us who call ourselves Christians and who go to church and worship and such, we have said, yes, I believe that truth. I believe that. I have that knowledge. And then it falls on us, like it did upon Pilate, to act on what we know. And these are the more jarring and haunting moments of life if we are honest with ourselves. They're the moments we come into a greater knowledge and awareness beyond just the fact that God is a loving, merciful Savior. We begin to see the other truths that exist. The day or the moment maybe that you realize this world is not a safe and just place. And maybe we even play a role in injustice or perpetuating systems that hurt others. Maybe there's a moment where you met that person or heard that story or looked that person in the face and learned something new about the way the world works and about how other people hold their stories. And now you can never unknow that. There's something true that you learned. I remember when I was in college and took a course on modern day slavery and human trafficking. And I will never not know what I learned in that course. And I remember when my jaw hit the desk I was sitting at and going, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I will never not know that. The day my son, when he was young, came home after an encounter the first time with a homeless person and said to me, mom, I had no idea. Well, now you know. If you're a parent, maybe you've said this to your kid or a teacher, you've said this to a student, when they act ridiculous, how many of us have ever said, you should know better than that? There is knowledge. And the knowledge we have about God and about the realities of this world, when paired with any power that we have, and all of us have different forms of power, some of us have more than others, it's a responsibility to act. And Pilate is a terror in this story because he refuses to act on what he knows, the innocence of the Son of God. Jesus speaks about this refusal to act in Luke 12, and this is a haunting passage. 
And he basically says, look, if you don't know that much, I'm not going to expect that much of you. I'm not going to punish you because you didn't know. And then he says this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more, more will be asked. This is Pilate. And I wonder if any of us find ourselves here as well. Washing our hands of some responsibility because we might say, oh, that's challenging to get involved with that. I don't understand everything about that. I, there's got to be an expert who can help fix that. I've got, I've got a lot on my calendar. I don't really have time to get involved with them. We abdicate our responsibility often. I know, God, that you love me. I know I worship you. I go to church. Uh, but I, you know what? I'm going to wash my hands of that. I'll, I'll work over here instead. And Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. Can we ever really wash our hands of anything that we know? And I'll close with, I'll close with this. I, uh, I'm a wannabe gardener. I can't garden um, well. I have things that come up in my yard every time um, spring comes up like this. And I don't know what they are, but I feel like I'm supposed to go do something <laughs> with what's happening in my backyard. And I have one lousy pair of gardening gloves that I lose at the end of every fall. They're actually two right-handed gloves. I have no idea how I ended up with two right-handed gloves, but they're two right-handed gloves. And it usually takes me about a month into the spring to find them. And so I actually go and I start pulling up things and cutting branches and trying to tame my yard with my bare hands. And when I come in, my hands are black. They're covered in brown and black dirt. There's dirt in my cuticles. I have scars on some of my fingers because I have cut myself grabbing some branches and sticks and thorns out of the dirt that I have no idea what they are. And I scrub and I scrub my hands and they're still dirty. I remember doing this one Saturday morning and remembering that I was to officiate a wedding that afternoon and I remember holding the ceremony papers with these dirty hands and one of the bridesmaids kind of looking at my, my hands. I could scrub and scrub and scrub them, but it doesn't, it doesn't come off. And you get what I'm saying here, right? I mean, you can't ever really wash your hands of what you, of what you know. I mean, Pilate knew, and he advocated his power. Here's the interesting flip. Jesus knew as well, and he used his power to unleash freedom for all of us. What do you do with what you know as truth? That is the question that we have before us as we enter this holy week. What do you do with what you know to be true about God and what you know about the way the world works? And what, if anything, are you washing your hands of? Because we're all washing our hands of something. Otherwise, this world would work a lot differently to the glory of God than it does. This is a haunting question. And the beauty of the example of Jesus 
is that indeed, instead of washing his hands of us, he plunges them deep into the earth and buries his whole self and doesn't wash his hands of us, but instead covers himself with the dirt of our sin and our mortality. And that is the example that we are called to follow. And that, my friends, is where I am going to leave us today as we begin to enter into this sacred week, this holy week of wondering and waiting for the resurrected life of Jesus to come up out of the dirt and into that glorious morning. Amen. I invite you to pray with me and our friends at Downers Grove are going to pray now as well with us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of this conversation, of the glory and the joy that is who you are. And Lord, we confess to you now in this moment the dirt and the stain that is on our hands. We confess to you, God, that we have washed our hands but have never truly found ourselves clean. And so as we work now, Lord, toward understanding that reality and to moving our way through this holy week, we invite you to wash us entirely so that we might be found waiting and honoring you on that glorious Easter morning. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people together said, Amen.